This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds, to the Cardiac Critical Care Series. This is Eunice Dugan, one of the co-chairs of the series, and I'm here with Dr. Amit Goyal, Karan Desai, and I'm very excited about today's episode. We've been through so many great topics from assessing shock and hemodynamics to the use of VA ECMO for cardiac arrest. This episode on shared decision-making and palliative care in the ICU is an equally important aspect of cardiac critical care, but one that is often not emphasized. Side check, if you haven't already seen our episode number 37, when we discussed palliative care in heart failure with Dr. Rob Razak, you should definitely do that. But today's conversation will be more specific to the circumstances we might run into in the CardioNerd CICU, aka the Shulman Ward. To help lead this discussion, we have fellow awesome CardioNerd, Dr. Sarah Chusey. Sarah is a true Chicagoan and completed her internal medicine residency, cardiology fellowship, and now Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology Fellowship at Northwestern. Welcome, Sarah. We're so glad you're here. Thanks so much for the introduction, and I'm so excited to be here. Today, I have the great honor of introducing Dr. Larry Allen. Dr. Allen is a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado in Denver, where he is also the medical director of Advanced Heart Failure and the co-director of the Colorado Program for Patient-Centered Decisions. He's an absolute force and true thought leader in the areas of shared decision-making, patient-centered care, and palliative care in advanced heart failure. Importantly, he has mentored countless trainees and early career cardiologists, including myself, for which I'm extremely grateful. And on top of all that, he is a gifted clinician and proud father. And so with that, Dr. Allen, welcome to CardioNerds. Well, thanks for having me, Sarah. It's an honor to be here. I've been called a nerd many times, but I'm really glad that I can now own that and be part of your group. Awesome. Nerds are welcome here. So Dr. Allen, I know that you are a big fan of all the outdoor activities that Denver has to offer. So just as an icebreaker, do you prefer summer or winter in Denver and why? Well, Colorado has a lot to offer in all seasons, but I have to say that the summers here open up the mountains and I do a lot of trail running and there's nothing better than a long trip through some of the mountains here in Colorado. Dr. Allen, we saw the picture of you hiking in the background. So that's great. It's all coming together, having met you for the first time. Thanks for sharing with us. So before we start, I expect there are some listeners out there who are still not quite sure while we're talking about palliative care on a cardiology podcast. Dr. Allen, can you enlighten us? How are the basic principles of palliative care relevant to cardiology? Well, anywhere in medicine, we deal with the concepts of symptom control, difficult medical decision making, and end of life. So think anybody who has taken care of patients with cardiac disease and particularly on this critical care series, you know, people are well aware that, that we don't always make people better, that we handle difficult decisions and that sometimes when things don't go the way that we want them to and our patients want them to, we have to think about how we transition our goals and move towards how to handle end of life. So to me, it's extremely obvious that the principles of palliative care 
across the spectrum of cardiology apply very easily. So I'm looking forward to talking about those issues as they relate to our practice. Yeah, you know, Dr. Allen, we couldn't agree with you more. And personally, for I think many of us, the end-of-life discussions that we have with our patients and their families are some of the most fulfilling and just take us to a different level with our patients. And is one of the reasons we had a heart failure and palliative care discussion earlier on in the podcast and are excited to dive into today's discussion. But before we do get to our first case, perhaps we can start out with defining some key concepts to set the stage for the discussion. So, Dr. Allen, can you briefly define the following concepts? Shared decision-making primary palliative care, specialty palliative care, and hospice care? Yeah, I think those are really, to me, some of the key concepts that cardiologists ought to have front and center of their mind. So first, the concept of shared decision-making, I think, has become very popularized in recent years. But I think people use the term loosely and don't always understand necessarily what it means exactly. But the way that I think about it is that, you know, we are here to service our patients. They have autonomy over the care that they receive. And while we may understand many of the medical nuances of their health and their health care, they ultimately know what they want and ultimately what they would like to get out of life. So the definition that I like to use for shared decision making is that it's a meeting between two experts. Right. So the patient comes to you, the clinician, for help with their health. And they are the expert on what's wrong with them, what's bothering them, but also what is important to them, what are their hopes and fears. And then they kind of bring to you what their values, goals, and preferences are as it relates to their health. And then we as clinicians, we're the experts on the medical side of things. So we, I think, ideally understand what is not possible, what is very high value, and then in cases where it's a little unclear or where there are a lot of trade-offs in a medical decision, what those trade-offs look like and how they're likely to play out. So in a typical shared decision-making interchange, we meet with the patient, we give them information about what we think the medical decision is that's there to be made. They then process that information, ask questions, and then we elicit back what they think potentially is most important to them and then we have a deliberative discussion about the different options presented to them and what sounds like it might be best for them. More frequently for tough decisions, I've been increasingly using some of the work from University of Wisconsin, which talks about when you have a, a couple of options that you're facing, uh, a lot of times we talk about handling the uncertainty of those decisions with what's the best outcome that's possible from understanding the medical situation and the patient's context, what's the worst possible outcome? And then what do I think is most likely if they pursue that option? And then, you know, they may decide not to proceed with that. And so the other option is perhaps to continue medical therapy. And then what's the best, worst, and most likely outcome for that other option? And then sometimes that actually helps people think through what are the trade-offs? What do I think this is going to look like? What's the range of outcomes? And how do I kind of handle that uncertainty? But again, so much of what we do 
in treating patients is really working with them to try and figure out what makes the most sense for them. And a lot of times that may be obvious because there's one option that really provides high value to them. But as medicine has become more complicated, I think there's a greater diversity of options that people have. And there's more equipoise a lot of times in terms of, you know, choosing between treatments. Within the context of shared decision making, I think that palliative care is important to discuss as well. So palliative care is defined by the World Health Organization as the kind of care that deals with patient symptoms and quality of life. And for most of us who practice palliative care, that actually manifests in a lot of different ways. We help with symptom control. We advise patients on difficult medical decisions. We help them think about how to approach those difficult decisions, particularly as they might relate to life and death. We prepare people for what transition to end of life might look like. And then we help with families and friends and loved ones in terms of their engagement in that process and then bereavement afterwards. But that can all be done by any clinician. So increasingly, people talk about palliative care in terms of primary and secondary palliative care or primary palliative care in terms of what regular clinicians or non-specialty palliative care clinicians do. And then secondary palliative care is what specialty palliative care trained clinicians do. And I think this is important because especially in cardiovascular disease or heart failure, the majority of palliative care is actually provided by the regular clinician or cardiac clinician. Much of what we do in heart failure or in coronary disease or other cardiac disease is actually trying to alleviate symptoms and make people feel better. And so I think putting a spin on that, that we really are thinking about the patient, not just in terms of improving cardiac function or lengthening life, but also thinking about how to make people feel better, I think is important. And really labeling that as primary palliative care is helpful. I think it also, by labeling primary palliative care as what we do on a day-to-day basis, also helps us get our mindset into doing shared decision-making and making sure that we think about the longitudinal course of people's disease. And then I think also people sometimes confuse palliative care with hospice care. And again, palliative care is an approach to care, as I previously described, whereas hospice care, I like to think of more as to some extent, a benefit, right? They, in the United States, we have Medicare and they pay for care in different forms. And when people enroll in hospice care, there's a specific health insurance benefit that provides a certain group of services within the context of the rules around those services. And that's hospice care. And hospice care can be done in the inpatient setting, but the majority of it occurs at home in the United States and generally involves paying for hospice nurses who come to the house and help out for patients who have terminal illness and less than six months left to live. So the hospice care is the exact type of care, but is supported by clinicians who are doing palliative care in that setting. So I think those terms are really helpful for anybody who is involved in healthcare, but especially helpful for those of us in cardiology and those of us who deal with patients who are very sick in the critical care space or those who have heart failure or other progressive end-stage cardiac disease.
Thanks, Dr. Allen, for that overview. And I especially agree, you know, the best case, worst case framework, I think, is really helpful and could benefit our discussions on heart failure, especially when we're making, you know, such high stake decisions that have a range of possible outcomes. So switching gears, I'd love to tell you about this patient from the CardioNerds Heart Failure Clinic that's adjacent to the Shulman Critical Care Ward. So Mr. C is a 75-year-old man who presents to clinic for routine follow-up. Briefly, he was diagnosed with HEFREF due to ischemic cardiomyopathy two years ago. Despite being revascularized and optimized on guideline-directed medical therapy, his ejection fraction remains low, and so he received an ICD last year. Since his initial diagnosis, he's had two subsequent heart failure hospitalizations about one year and then six months ago. At his appointment today, he's feeling well. He can walk three to four blocks or two flights of stairs before getting winded, and he's not limited at all in his daily activities. He's tolerating optimal guideline-directed medical therapy and has stable CKD with a creatinine of 1.5. So Dr. Allen, we see patients like this all the time who have some markers of poor prognosis, in this case, recent hospitalizations and impaired kidney function, but who, on the other hand, are looking and feeling well and are well compensated when they're sitting in front of us in clinic. And it can be really challenging to know how and when to discuss the what-ifs with these patients. So what are some barriers to discussing prognosis and potential future decisions with patients with heart failure? And what's your approach? When I was a fellow and moving into faculty and developing my academic career, I really started working with some risk models. And my thought at the time was, you know, if we could just do a better job collecting information about patients and refining our ability to understand what was going to happen to them, we would feel more comfortable with the conversations that we had about, you know, their prognosis, what their direction was going, get them either referred in a more timely manner to an advanced heart failure center, to LVAD implantation, or even referral to a hospice in a better way. And, you know, after a few years of doing that, it felt a little bit like trying to make a better mousetrap. And I think the problem with the world and when you're thinking about prognosis is that, you know, shit happens. And when I look at a patient today, I really don't know all the things that are going to happen in the subsequent week. And so a risk model can only be so accurate in terms of telling me where that patient is going to be in a month. So while I think risk models are helpful in terms of if we look at this patient that you presented and we see that he is older, he's got chronic kidney disease, he has been treated pretty well and still hasn't responded, then we can say that there's a reasonable chance that in the coming months he may have serious complications related to his heart failure. It's a little hard to say for sure what his course is going to look like in the coming days, weeks, months, years. And so I think one of the things that I've shifted in my mind is while risk models give us some grounding and kind of calibrate where we're starting from, we need to also embrace the concept of uncertainty, which is what patients deal with all the time and what we deal with when we're making recommendations to patients. And that is that there's a lot of inherent uncertainty in the world in general, but particularly in how patients with heart failure do. And so we consequently have to recognize that uncertainty to patients, 
help them understand that there are a variety of things that might happen to them, suggest some things that they might plan for, and then continue to iteratively come back to the patient and reevaluate not only where they're at, but what their options are. In that, you know, we had talked about this concept of best, worst, and most likely outcomes. I think that's one way to deal with uncertainty. Another concept that I like for dealing with uncertainty is the concept of you know, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. And I often use that with patients. I will frequently these days have a patient like this one where I'm not really sure what's going to happen over the next few months. And I'll say, you know, we should talk about plan A and plan B. And plan A is hoping for the best, which is that if we get a little lucky and we do a good job with medicines and the patient does a good job staying engaged and communicating with us and working to optimize medicines, taking them, that Plan A is that the patient will get better on medical therapy and be able to, you know, do relatively well and enjoy his life. But we also need to think about plan B, which is that if things don't go well, what are the other options that we can think of other than medical therapy that might be available? And I think the process of going through what those options are and then planning for them is important. So Sometimes I use this when I'm formally initiating an LVAD or transplant evaluation, but I think it can also be a discussion about advanced care planning and thinking about, well, if things do get worse and there aren't a lot of medical options because of age and comorbidity, what would the threshold look like for having an appointment with our palliative care group, making sure that advanced care planning is done, and you know, what would it look like to engage hospice? You know, patients, I think, are sometimes a little averse to that initially, but I found over time that over the course of their illness and in my relationships with them, the majority of patients appreciate that honesty. And so a little time invested up front and a little nudging and discomfort up front can sometimes lead to a lot of trust and a little more reality checking down the road and actually some pretty high value relationships with people with, I think, better preparedness as they move forward. Clearly, that takes time, though. And so I think if you ask me, one of the main things we need to do in the healthcare system is readdress what we pay for. And, and part of that is that we pay a lot for procedures, but we don't pay a lot for medication titration and having these types of discussions about where patients are and anticipating difficult decisions in the future. Dr. Allen, thank you so much for that discussion. I just want to say a couple of things that I really love that you said is this idea of embracing the concept of uncertainty and bringing that up with patients in the way of, quote, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. And I really like that because, you know, it leaves room for hope, but it allows for these other serious discussions that need to happen. And of course, as you said, we know that these unpredictable clinical trajectories are what makes patients with heart failure pretty unique, say, compared with patients with malignancies who tend to have a more linear and predictable clinical course. Along those lines, we know that in patients with cancer, early specialty palliative care improves quality of life and symptom burden and is even associated with improved survival in some studies. What are some of the differences between treating patients with heart failure and malignancy as far as prognostication? Could you describe for our audience some of the data supporting specialty palliative care for our patients with heart failure? And is there a role for specialty palliative care referral in our patient, Mr. C's, presentation? Well, the first thing I'd say is I think there are actually a lot more similarities between cancer and, and heart failure or advanced cardiac disease than we sometimes let on. 
And I actually think those similarities are becoming even more common, right? So we used to have patients who would have metastatic lung cancer and, you know, very few of them would live past 18 months. And now with the kind of remarkable improvements in cancer therapies, this concept of uncertainty and what the course of cancer looks like is actually becoming less certain. And so uh, I think that the oncology community is dealing with the very same points that we just made a minute ago of not really knowing what's going to happen and not knowing how people are going to respond to various therapies. And so they also, just like we discussed, need to be able to hope for the best, plan for the worst, adjust as time goes on, see which therapies work. Once they fail, what are the other options? I mean, I think cancer therapy, like heart failure therapy, really involves a lot of shared decision making along the way. So again, I think this uncertainty is not unique to heart failure. It is actually just part of medicine. And with these uh, amazing improvements in, in so many aspects of care, whether it's cancer, cardiology, other areas, it certainly gives a lot of our patients better outcomes, but it also makes the care more complicated and also sometimes more uncertain. I do think that there are a few parts of, you know, heart failure care that are really important. One is that when patients have a progressive cardiac disease and develop heart failure, they do have a, a lot of symptoms. And a lot of what we can do in primary palliative care, just being good clinicians, is to make sure that we're not just focused on survival and defibrillators and GDMT, but we are really balancing that against really good volume control to control symptoms and really working with our patients to deal with the side effects that they have. So a lot of what I do these days is fortunately, I've got a number of guideline-directed medical therapies that I can offer them. But if they feel really bad on sacubitril valsartan, you know, fortunately, I've got some other therapies that I can try and I can down titrate one medicine and try another. So a lot of what we're doing is really taking care of the whole patient, including the palliative and symptomatic aspects of it. And again, that focus on quality of life is critical. And fortunately, many of the therapies that we have that prolong life also improve left ventricular remodeling and actually lead to improved quality of life as well. So if we're doing a really good job, we're both treating symptoms as well as survival. I don't think that we can do this all alone, though, even though I think a lot of the palliative and symptomatic aspects of heart failure care tie right into what we do as heart failure doctors. I do think that the formal or specialty palliative care community offers a lot. And in current modern medical care setting, there's so much that we can do. We do need specialists who have specific training that we may not have and that good collaborative care in these patients with complex disease who are approaching end of life involving specialty palliative care is quite helpful. And there are now a few trials in the heart failure realm that have shown that engagement of various specialty palliative care groups might be helpful. So a couple of those are first the CASA trial, which David Beckelman, who's actually here at Colorado with me, he spends more of his time at the VA, but he looked at a kind of collaborative palliative model with a team who engaged patients who had pretty symptomatic heart failure. And some of our patients here from Colorado were involved in that study. And what they ended up showing was that patients' depressive symptoms probably a little bit improved through the addition of a, a palliative a collaborative team into the patient's care. 
one of the downsides of that trial is I think that patients in it weren't probably as advanced as they ideally wanted. And so their symptoms weren't as bad as they might have been, which gives, you know, less opportunity to really improve symptoms if the symptoms aren't significant from the start. Another group that we've been working with is Marie Bakaitis and the University of Alabama group have been working on caregiver support and have developed the Enable platform, essentially, which is to help caregivers initially for patients with cancer. And that was actually modified by Nick O'Donnell for the heart failure group. And Enable was positive for patients with cancer. Unfortunately, in the heart failure group, it, it didn't achieve significant improvement in how caregivers were doing. But again, I think one of the problems with that study is when you look, the caregivers were actually relatively well compensated at baseline. So so again, if we're enrolling patients who feel pretty good or caregivers who are pretty well compensated, it's difficult for these kinds of interventions to improve outcomes. So again, I think some promise there in terms of the enable tools to help caregivers. But I think, again, picking people who really need that kind of specialty help or tools to help around these issues is important. And we've developed an Enable LVAD tool for caregivers to help them. And that has just rolled out online at patientdecisionaid.org. The PALHF study is NIH-funded study led by Duke, and that study is really one of the main studies that was positive in terms of engaging formal palliative care consultation for patients who had advanced heart failure, and it showed essentially improved outcomes in those patients. So I think an impressive study. And then the SWAP study was done by the Brigham Hospital involving actually social workers training palliative care to assist teams to help patients with advanced heart failure, particularly around advanced care planning. And that study was also helpful in terms of encouraging patients to do that. So, you know, if you think about those trials and others that are from the cancer literature, I think my takeaway is that a lot of this work around palliative care symptom control, end of life, good decision making really needs to be done by us. But we may not have the training or the expertise or may not just do it frequently enough that we feel really comfortable. And as we get into patients who are really struggling or patients who are making a major transition or patients who have to make a big decision like whether they should pursue LVAD therapy or not and all the implications of that, I think there is growing body of evidence to say that engagement of uh, specialty palliative care in those settings likely has benefit if applied to a select group of patients who really have need and are open to that. You know, we at our site, we work a lot with our palliative care group, but it's hard in a busy clinical setting when you have different teams rotating around the hospital to create that true collaboration. So, you know, we, one, try and meet weekly with them to run through patients. They attend our transplant and LVAD listing conferences for certain patients. And we've created a number of triggers to try and automatically engage subspecialty palliative care so that we don't forget about it in patients who are probably going to have a high level of need. So the two triggers that we most commonly use are anybody who's getting evaluated for LVAD gets an automatic palliative care consultation. And then our patients who are admitted to the CTICU and stay there for more than 48 hours are also getting automatic palliative care formal consultation in the hospital. And we have some other triggers as well for specific patient populations. And I think that has helped. So back to the case that you presented, you know, I think that this patient is somebody who 
could definitely benefit from meeting up with a specialty palliative care. One, to get a different perspective than maybe the cardiology clinician provides. And then I think particularly being encouraged to think about end of life and advanced care planning and maybe what that might look like and how to prepare for it. Those things might be well done by a specialty palliative care trained person who not only has that experience and training, but also I think sometimes helpful to have almost a third party to kind of check what's going on with the care here in a patient you know, that's been dealing with heart failure for a long time. So I would encourage it if it's available and the patient is amenable to it. Thanks, Dr. Allen, for that overview. And especially we're discussing all of those trials. Many sort of advocate for thinking about specialty palliative care almost as a medication or a therapy, as in what's the optimal dose or timing or patient that's appropriate for consultation. And most likely, I feel like each patient is different, which is what makes studying these interventions so challenging. So definitely a need for a future study. So back to our case. You don't see Mr. C again for some time as he moves out of state and transfers his medical care to another center. However, two years later, you are surprised to be consulted on him from the emergency department. In reviewing his external records, you see that he's had three additional hospitalizations since you saw him last and has had to discontinue his RNA due to hypotension. His ejection fraction has fallen, it's now 20%, and his left ventricle has become more dilated. On presentation, Mr. C has objective evidence of cardiogenic shock with hypotension, acute kidney injury, elevated transaminases, and elevated lactic acid. A crude central venous catheter demonstrates a venous saturation of 40%, and he's being transferred to the Shulman ward while a multidisciplinary shock call is convened. So we discussed some approaches to shared decision-making and values clarification in the outpatient setting, as well as the role of palliative care in stable heart failure. But in cardiology, and especially in training, we frequently encounter these emergency or crisis situations where we need to really quickly determine the plan of care, and that may involve invasive interventions. And eliciting a sick patient's goals and values in these high-pressure and high-acuity settings can be really challenging, especially when these discussions haven't occurred in advance of the acute illness. So Dr. Allen, how can we incorporate shared decision-making into the management of critical illness, such as cardiogenic shock pathways? And then what advice do you have for trainees who are often at the bedside and driving these important decisions and discussions? So I think that this case, as you just presented, highlights the importance of discussing palliative care concepts throughout the course of somebody's disease. This situation is, to some extent, predictable, not in the exact details of it, but we've been talking about a 75-year-old with pretty severe cardiac disease and chronic kidney disease who I think wasn't thriving on medical therapy. And so to some extent, it was a matter of time before we were going to be having a situation like this. So the first point is that it highlights the importance of early integration of palliative care, including advanced care directives and just discussions with the patient and his family about what kind of life he wants to lead and what kind of end of life he would like to have. And having that documented or at least having had those discussions with himself and his decision makers becomes really critical in the situation that you just showed. So again, a little time up front can help us in this situation. I do think it's hard for patients to project when they're stable and we're asking them about advanced care directives exactly what they would do in a situation like this because they don't 
live in the CCU like many of us do. And so while I think advanced care directives are important, I think some of this is a defining what kind of person he is. And a lot of times I use the terms either medical maximizer, medical minimizer, or what his preference for aggressiveness of care is. And understanding that I think can be helpful just crudely in this kind of situation, which is that somebody who's a medical maximizer or really wants aggressive care, those are the kind of people who are very willing to undergo significant medical care and procedures and intensive care in order to give them the best chance of prolonged survival. And there are other people whose overall approach to life and the healthcare that they get is that their medical minimizers are less aggressive. And, you know, I've had people tell me things like, well, there are worse things than death and I've had a good life and I don't really want to be a burden. And had a patient like this expressed whether he was more aggressive or less aggressive, I think that can help in these situations, especially because if he says he's very aggressive and wants to go forward, then I think we kind of know a lot of what we should consider offering for this patient, as opposed to if he's really less aggressive, then I think we really want to engage him or his family if he's unable to make decisions about the things that we may not want to do. You know, how how do you handle this as a trainee? Because when you have a patient like this, because many times they haven't documented that, we don't know what their preferences are. It hasn't been written down. We don't have a longitudinal relationship with them. And I think that what that requires is a team of people who are providing this care, but some of the team members are really working on treating the patient's acute shock and starting to escalate care. But at the same time, there are other team members who are doing what they can to either talk to the patient or, if not possible, talk to the patient's family and, and their medical power of attorney or healthcare proxies about what they might want or especially might not want. And then using those two things back and forth to kind of figure out how quickly and how much to escalate the care for this patient. And then the other thing I think that is probably worth commenting on is that Sometimes people get frustrated with shared decision making because they say, well, you know, the family wants me to do all this and I just don't think it's appropriate. And I, I do think the concept of medical futility or that there are sometimes multiple approaches to care for which there's equipoise versus there are things that are just not that appropriate. We need to keep that in mind. So when we're helping patients do shared decision making, that is making decisions between medically appropriate options. And it comes to a point in time for many of our patients, if they're much older with multi-morbidity, they've been getting fairly aggressive care and now they're failing that care, that they may not really be a candidate for a lot of additional therapies. Or we can employ percutaneous mechanical circulatory support, but just because we can doesn't mean we should, even if the patient, their family doesn't want the patient to die. And so a good example of this is that, you know, we are pretty careful about whom we put on ECMO and who we don't. And just because a, a patient is very fearful or doesn't want to die doesn't mean that they should necessarily go on ECMO if there's no thought that the patient is going to be able to reverse some acute process that's made them go into shock and they don't have other options to get out of it. So this is a patient who's truly been failing therapy, hasn't improved despite extensive efforts, has been in the hospital multiple times, and because of maybe severe kidney disease, is not a candidate for left ventricular assist device therapy, then that's a patient for whom 
I think there actually aren't a lot of options. And really, this then becomes a discussion about how to transition to a more end-of-life care and engage the patient and, and or their family members about how that transition is going to take place rather than talking about options that really aren't options. So that's another key to this. But again, it's hard to know when something is truly futile versus maybe it doesn't sound like a good option, but I guess theoretically could be an option versus when you know, it's a very reasonable option for a patient. That's a spectrum that is difficult to sort out. You know, Dr. Allen, you mentioned just there that there's a spectrum that's difficult to sort out. And I want to take it back to one of the comments you made regarding medical maximizers and medical minimizers, which is also a spectrum that is hard to sort out. And just listening to you talk, you know, it makes me think just how much understanding that spectrum comes with experience and meeting patients and being in their moments of illness and at the end of life to truly get a sense of what that spectrum entails. So now specifically for this patient, Mr. C, he's ultimately stabilized with diuresis, low-dose guideline-directed therapy, and inotropes, but he's unable to be weaned from the dibutamine. And the team makes a decision, or at least offers, that we should evaluate this patient for a left ventricular assist device. So at this time, he's stable with good mental status, and he's ambulatory on the floor. Dr. Allen, this decision to undergo LVAD implantation is quite life-altering. How do we ensure that we're doing this right? And is there a role for specialty palliative care in this process? I know you mentioned at your institution that this would trigger a specialty palliative care consult, and as would happen in mine as well. And finally, are there decision aids that can help this process? Yeah. So, you know, this is a patient who is now inotrope dependent and by definition is uh, advanced heart failure stage D. And I think that that is a new chapter uh, in his heart failure. And I think stage D heart failure the stakes are just a lot higher. The symptoms are often significant. Patient's functional status is often limited. And the chance for death in advanced heart failure is quite high. So now we're in a high stakes setting. And I think we have to start having some pretty serious discussions, you know, built hopefully on prior discussions about where this patient is at and what they're willing to maybe undertake. And so this patient really now at this point could talk about thinking about hospice. Some hospices will take dobutamine, some won't. Some patients will go home on an IV infusion of dobutamine with kind of home care and see how it goes. But the survival in a patient like this on or off dobutamine is pretty poor. And so his best chance for significantly prolonging his life at this point, assuming he's not a transplant candidate, is probably to consider implantation of a left ventricular assist device. We've done a lot of work on decision-making for left ventricular assist device. The reason for that is that it is about as a high stakes, high risk, high reward therapy as there is, right? It's a major cardiac surgery. It's usually done in patients who are quite sick. So the risk of surgery is even higher. And, you know, if LVAD implantation goes well, patients can expect to feel better and live significantly longer with, you know, third generation devices. But as anybody who's taking care of LVAD patients knows, there are a lot of potential problems as well that extend 
beyond the risks of surgery itself. You have a device that requires a significant amount of care in terms of driveline and equipment, requires anticoagulation in a patient who is inherently coagulopathic, and so bleeding is common. And then unfortunately, you know, 15 to 20% of our patients go on to have right ventricular failure. So we've told patients we're putting an LVAD in to get rid of their heart failure, and they're left with significant heart failure. In addition to, we don't cure ventricular tachycardia, and nor do we cure all of their other ailments, including their kidney disease, their COPD, their arthritis, whatever else they have. And then I think what ups this a lot more is not only is this resource-intensive therapy for society and people caring for this, but it does have pretty significant demands on caregivers. And so when patients are making a decision about LVAD, they're making a decision for their social network, their families, and oftentimes their spouse. So this is, again, a high-risk, high-reward therapy potentially. And so people should not undertake it lightly. And what we saw about a decade ago is that, you know, a lot of patients were facing advanced heart failure. They're potentially going to die from their heart failure. And people were being offered an LVAD with kind of the framing around it that it was, you know, an LVAD or die, that they didn't really have a choice, that this was their only good option. And I think that that framing didn't sit well with me or the group of researchers that I work with, which is that an LVAD is not right for everybody and it's dependent on the context. So it's different for a 40-year-old than an 80-year-old, but it's also dependent on the patient's values, goals, and preferences. This is a therapy that is much better for a medical maximizer than it is for a medical minimizer. And so for an older patient who doesn't want a lot to do with the healthcare system, an LVAD is maybe not a great choice. So there was a lot of information a decade ago about LVADs in terms of what they were and what they did, and even some information about outcomes. But there really wasn't a lot of discussion about the fact that people had a choice around this. And so I had worked actually with a medical student many years ago and reviewed all the materials that were out there about left ventricular assist devices. And not surprisingly, most of them were either from implanting programs or from industry who really, to some extent, had a bias towards doing these LVADs because that's what they were built to do. And no disrespect to the industry who's developed some pretty amazing devices and no disrespect to transplant and LVAD implanting centers who have to put together incredible teams of people to do this. But that's what they're built to do. And they were not necessarily, I think, encouraging patients to contemplate what life without an LVAD might look like. So we had set out our group to develop a decision aid. And the difference between a decision aid and a piece of educational material is that Uh, Decision aids don't just give information and tell you about an option. They do a couple of things that are unique to decision aids. One is that they talk about a treatment as an option while also talking about other treatment options that would likely be possible for a patient. So an LVAD information material might tell you about an LVAD, but an LVAD decision aid tells you about what does life with an LVAD look like and what might life look like if you decline an LVAD. The other thing is that decision aids really work to try and get the gestalt of what therapeutic options are like, both with and without a therapy in this case, and then ask patients to reflect on their values and then try and map the decision in terms of the options that they have to their values. And so thinking about 
you know, what are your main concerns? Is your main concern to survive? And is your main concern of your spouse for you to survive? And you're okay with a lot of therapy and your spouse is really fine with trying to take care of you and you don't have financial concerns around that and you're really a medical maximizer, then an LVAD might be a pretty good option for you if the team thinks medically that it's likely to end up going well. And vice versa, if your values are not to do that, you're concerned about the burdens of this on yourself, but also on your family, and there are other concerns, then maybe that's not the right therapy. And the decision is specifically ask people to do that. So we developed a 26-minute video that showed people who got an LVAD and did well, people who got an LVAD and struggled people who turn down an LVAT, share those various perspectives as well as what the concerns are and then ask people to think about their values as it relates to the decision. And just recognizing that this is a medical decision, we put that all in this 26-minute video and then there's an eight-page pamphlet. And so those are online at, again, our website that we host, patientdecisionaid.org. And then one of the most rewarding things that I've done in my academic medical career is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute gave us money to try and implement these decision aids across the country. And my colleague, Dan Matlock, came to me and said, you know, why don't we just tell PCORI that we'll reach out to every program in the country that implants LVADs and try and get them to use this? And I said, that sounds kind of crazy. And he said, well, we can write it down and then let's see what we can accomplish. So about four years ago, after we had some positive results that our decision aid was helping people make better decisions, we got some money and then we've, uh, with our team led by Jocelyn Thompson and Monica Fitzgerald and Colleen McElvin, we've actually contacted all 180 programs in the country and about, I think, over 100 of the programs now are regularly using the decision aids when they start an evaluation for LVAD and talk to patients about whether they should get implanted. And so it's been a really huge success. We've got a ton of positive feedback. I think we've really helped patients and families and even programs approach this in a healthier way in terms of really thinking about what does it mean to take on an LVAD and especially in older patients with multimorbidity, that there are a lot of trade-offs and they should just understand that there's uncertainty. It's a little unclear how it's going to go and that people can actually choose to get an LVAD or not choose to get an LVAD and they should go into it eyes wide open knowing what they're getting into. Wow, Dr. Allen, that's incredible. Thank you so much to you and your colleagues who have put in so much hard work in developing this resource for patients. As you said, this is such a complex decision, not just for patients, but also their family members. As far as for our patient, after discussing the risks and benefits of both LVAD and outpatient inotropes, Mr. C declines both therapies. His family and his clinicians all support this decision and feel it's consistent with his goals and values. He's evaluated by palliative care and hospice who believe he's appropriate for home hospice. Dr. Allen, what are some of the benefits of hospice for patients with heart failure? And if any, what are some ways that hospice falls short for these patients? So for Mr. C here, his decision to decline all that in outpatient inotropes, I assume, was a personal one, but it sounds reasonable. And so once he makes that decision, we want to support him. And it is a major transition now towards a more active end-of-life care. And given the hospitalizations, the instability of his cardiac disease, he's probably likely to have significant symptoms that are going to progress once he stops his dobutamine. So I think a couple of considerations in terms of enrolling him in hospice care. First is, 
if he's 75 and lives in the United States, he probably has a hospice benefit under Medicare. And typically, the people in the hospital who help patients engage hospice and make that transition are a case management group. I think one of the errors that we sometimes make is we ask our subspecialty palliative care group, we confuse that they're the ones who are directly linked to hospice, which is not always the case. And again, because hospice is an insurance benefit, a lot of that actually is done on the case management side. So one is to make sure you have good workings with case management and that you understand how to engage around hospice agencies and what the benefits cover and don't cover, and then help the patient and his family find an appropriate agency that they feel meets their needs in the, you know, wherever they live. The second thing about engaging people in hospice is what the hospice will and will not cover. So generally, the hospice benefit is kind of a fixed payment per day, and then the hospice agency gets the money to provide care, and then whatever they're providing, they get a fixed payment, and then they have to provide care, and all the things that they do come out of that payment. So one of the things to consider when patients are being switched to hospice is really to consider what are the things that are most consistent with hospice care in terms of treatments. And then what are things that really are not providing value to the patient and can be discontinued? And I think the more that you as the clinician and kind of the person who has a relationship with the patient, the family can anticipate and think about what types of therapies are likely to be discontinued on the way out of the hospital, including, say, anticoagulation or even some of the guideline-directed medical therapies, you know, at this point may not really be improving symptoms. The more that you can think through them and think what can be discontinued and anticipate that, the easier that transition will be. And that's one of the places I've seen hospice kind of fall down, which is that some hospice agencies will say that they really don't think drug A or drug B should be continued. And the patient thinks that drug A and drug B are pretty important to them. And so helping as the clinician negotiate what is appropriately discontinued, I think, could be helpful. The other thing is this patient has an ICD and making sure that you don't send patients with a defibrillator home with the shocking function turned on, I think is pretty important. You know, I think there are patients who will engage in hospice and then say, well, they still want their defibrillator on. I think most of the time that those two things are a little bit inconsistent. So understanding why the patient, the family potentially want the defibrillator left on and maybe talking through that a lot of times after some greater understanding is achieved, the defibrillator function can be turned off. And I think that generally simplifies care overall. It makes it a little easier for the hospice agency and it decreases the likelihood of shocks at the end of life. There's been some data to show that as much as 10% of people with a defibrillator in hospice care actually still have the defibrillator turned on. And so that's something to, to certainly take consideration of. We actually created within our Epic electronic health system that if a DNR order is entered into the computer order entry, if the patient has a history of ICD implantation recorded in the electronic record, it actually creates a best practice alert that says, would you like to consult electrophysiology to turn off the defibrillator? We've found that to be helpful and I think probably averted some inappropriate shocks at the end of life. So that's another thing to think about and there are a lot of ways to approach that. 
The other thing is once patients go to hospice at home, you know, sometimes we do struggle with how do we continue to provide care for them? Because the goal is not to completely necessarily shift their care or to abandon them, but to continue to work on their symptom control and uh, their quality of life. And so, you know, maybe they have less than six months to live, but they may have weeks to months to live and trying to figure out how to maximize their time at home, limit their trips to the hospital or to the clinic but still try and make sure that they're well cared for, I think is actually pretty tricky and depends on the patient and kind of what their goals are. The other thing in this patient that we've struggled with is you have patients who are inotrope dependent and you're going to turn off the inotropes and it's a little unclear how quickly they will decline. So we have sometimes, you know, called the ambulance, had the patient with their debutamine or milrinone running and when they get home and meet the hospice nurse have the inotrope discontinued, but be ready to treat the patient for air hunger and other symptoms if they rapidly develop that on discontinuation of the inotrope is pretty important. So understanding the logistics around transfer home and timing of discontinuation of inotropic therapy is pretty important. And I think a lot of times people don't anticipate that. And if you don't anticipate that, then you can end up with a mess when people get home. And you're trying to make this as smooth and peaceful of a transition as possible in a very stressful situation. And so if you don't anticipate those things and try and have a good, smooth plan for it, you can really exacerbate the patient and their family's stress around the transition to home and trying to get into hospice care at home. Yeah, I found that this is really a big gap in patient-centered care, meaning what is and what isn't provided by hospice, because as you mentioned, there's a lot of variability. But during their heart failure year, navigating these discussions around continuation of palliative inotropes and other therapies like dialysis and diuretics can be really challenging. And I think there's a lot of space to improve both on a competency level for us, but also potentially a policy level. So thanks for going through that. So to conclude our case, one month later, Mr. C passes away peacefully at home surrounded by his family. And as cardiologists, heart failure clinicians, critical care clinicians, we tend to see a lot of deaths that occur in the inpatient setting, often after aggressive end-of-life interventions. And I think for many people, Mr. C's death would be considered a quote-unquote good death, meaning he passes away at home surrounded by family. And I think this is something that we should be striving for more as a cardiology community. So, Dr. Allen, thank you so much for guiding us through such an important discussion. This is a topic, as you mentioned, that's so central to cardiology and heart failure in particular, but that's often not prioritized. So as we wrap up, what are your final thoughts on the path forward towards improving shared decision-making, patient-centered care, and the provision of palliative care in patients with cardiovascular disease? Well, I think we've come a long way in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years. The types of conversations that people are having, I, I think, have really improved. I think the fact that the medical community is talking about shared decision-making like it's just part of what we do is important. I think this shift towards engagement where we've gone from a more paternalistic medical society to one where we talk about patients and families and clinicians and other healthcare professionals working together to deliver optimal healthcare. I think overall, that's a really positive one. 
And so, you know, I think it's an exciting time for us. I think there are some challenges, too. I mean, in the United States during the pandemic, we've learned that there is a fair amount of distrust and that distrust and confusion, I think, has led to some of the failings of the pandemic around vaccines and other things. So, you know, I think we need to embrace the concept of patient engagement shared decision-making, trusting and listening to our patients and what they care about. That's the way forward, I think, in our complex healthcare system. And so I think we have that opportunity in front of us. We've got the tools in place, but we also have the challenges that are out there right now. And I think the concept of palliative care and high-quality shared decision-making are a key way for us to get there. You know, I think the other thing is our goal is to help people live happy, healthy, full lives. But, you know, everyone dies. So understanding that death is a part of life and how do we make those transitions? And like you said, have good deaths to end good lives is part of good health care. And so we can't ignore that. We can't fight against it. We should embrace it. I think we have the opportunity to do that. And this discussion today is just one part of that. So thanks for having me. I am very inspired and I hope our listeners are as well. So our last question for you, Dr. Allen, is what makes your heart flutter about caring for the critically ill? Well, life is about connection. And I think there is no more powerful connection that we can make than taking care of patients in the high pace setting of the critical care ward. And there's so much that we can do for patients in the CCU. And that's exciting. But what's also exciting is the art of medicine and the connection that we have to the people there, to the teams that deliver that care, but especially to the patients who are at their most vulnerable point in life and their families who are scared and confused and vulnerable. And delivering the most high quality care, but also the most patient-centered and thoughtful care that we can in that setting, I think is just a great gift. And the harder we work at it and the better we do, the more difference we make and the greater the connections we make to the patients and their families. So it's a wonderful place to be. And I just feel very lucky that I get to practice in the CCU. Dr. Allen, thank you so much for sharing that. It's a true privilege to have you on for this episode and to hear your thoughts. We've covered so many key concepts, some of the research that we know and the efforts in this growing field. And thank you for reminding us about really what brings us all to medicine and caring for patients, which is the connection. And that was a beautiful way to end this important episode. So with that, Dr. Allen, thank you again so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you to all the cardio nerds. Thank you. So Sarah, before we started recording this discussion, you'd mentioned that you're signing on to remain at Northwestern University as an advanced heart failure transplant attending, as well as APD for the medicine residency. And it's been amazing to watch you grow from afar. And all of us at Cardio Nerds wish you the very best and all the success as you move forward. But, you know, I think this is a, it's a special time as you transition into, you know, going from being a trainee to being a faculty. And I think that time can be inspiring for early learners and mid to late career faculty at the same time. So do you want to share what it feels like to have signed on for your dream job and what you're looking forward to as you dive into your career? Yeah, thanks for the question. Obviously, it's terrifying, but also extremely exciting. You know, I've learned from so many people throughout training, 
so many different types of attendings who all have a different style. And I'm really excited to bring my own style to my clinical care, um, sort of taking pieces that I've learned from other people. And obviously, I'm very passionate about palliative care and that intersection with heart failure. And so I think that that's sort of a unique aspect of my style that I'll bring. And like you said, I'll have some protected time with the residency and my focus is going to be on recruitment. And so I'm especially excited to focus on those efforts and in particular trying to bring a diverse, well-rounded class to Northwestern because I think that's extremely important and something that I've become more passionate about over the past few years. And so, yeah, I'm thrilled to be in this spot and happy to chat with anyone who has questions about the job search in the future. That's incredible, Sarah. Thanks for sharing. And we're just so excited for you and your learners and all your patients moving forward. Thank you so much. 